Welcome to the AAP Board Review Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reviewing high-yield, board-relevant topics in the field of physiatry. My name is Dr. Mani Singh, and I'm a resident of New York Presbyterian at Columbia and Cornell in New York. I'm excited to be here with my co-host, Parth. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Parth Tucker. We're excited to have all of you join us today. In today's episode, we'll be discussing lower extremity mononeuropathies. There is a ton of information regarding lower extremity mononeuropathies, both relevant to board exams and clinical practice. Disclaimer. The AAP board review series is for education and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the host and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. Content for the series is based off of current PMNR learning materials and is created by residents for residents. It is not an official board review study guide. Okay, let's get into our first case. A 65-year-old male presents with posterior leg pain and difficulty walking. He reports remote low back pain and a recent posterior hip dislocation after he was in a motor vehicle accident. This was treated by close reduction in the emergency room. Regarding his pain, his symptoms start deep to his gluteal muscles on the right side and travel all the way down to the posterior aspect of his leg into his calves and foot. The pain is described as burning and tingling. He also reports weakness when he tries to bend his leg at the knee or point his ankle, which makes walking difficult. He does not have any difficulty straightening his leg. So Mani, based on the information we have so far, what is on your differential diagnosis? Interesting case, Parth. There are a few things on my differential so far. First would be a sciatic neuropathy, given his recent posterior hip dislocation. These types of dislocations put the sciatic nerve at risk for injury, as this nerve courses posterior to the acetabulum. That being said, though, I would definitely need to rule out a lumbosacral radiculopathy, or even a lumbosacral plexopathy, before confirming the diagnosis. The easiest way for me to approach these types of cases is really to think about the anatomy. This includes the nerves involved, the muscles involved, and the patient's symptoms. That's a good way to think about neuropathies in general. Let's take a step back and think about localizing the lesion. How would you break down this case using your understanding of neuroanatomy? Let's go back and think about his HPI. He is reporting posterior leg pain that starts deep to his gluteal muscles and travels all the way down his leg. Anatomically, this sounds suspicious for involvement of the sciatic nerve. The next important thing to try to figure out is where this injury is occurring. Specifically, is it at the root level, the plexus level, or the peripheral nerve level? In general, we know that the sciatic nerve is the largest nerve in the human body. It travels down the posterior leg and then splits into two major peripheral nerves, the tibial nerve and the common fibular nerve, as we move more distally. What are the origins and course of the sciatic nerve? Good question, Parth. The sciatic nerve has contributions from the L4, L5, S1, S2, and S3 nerve roots. At the plexus level, the anterior and posterior divisions of the sacral plexus join to form the sciatic nerve. The posterior division fibers give rise to the common fibular nerve, whereas the anterior division fibers give rise to the tibial nerve. They travel down the posterior leg in a common nerve sheath, but do not share fascicles. After the sciatic nerve is formed, it exits the pelvis through the greater sciatic foramen, goes into the sciatic notch between the ischial tuberosity and the lesser trochanter. On its way to the popliteal fossa, it then gives off some important branches. 
First is the superior gluteal nerve, which innervates the gluteus minimus, the gluteus medius, and the tensor fascia lata. The sciatic nerve then continues and can pierce the piriformis or travel underneath it. This is a possible site of entrapment or pathology, although true piriformis syndrome is very rare. As the nerve continues, it gives rise to a second important branch. This is the inferior gluteal nerve, which innervates the gluteus maximus. We need to innervate the posterior hamstring muscles now. Parth, remember how we mentioned there's a tibial and fibular division? I do remember that, Mani. As the sciatic nerve gets closer to the popliteal fossa, I know it eventually will split into the tibial nerve as well as the common fibular nerve. The tibial nerve will continue to run more posteriorly and deep in the lower leg, whereas the common fibular nerve will travel laterally towards the fibular head and innervate some important lateral lower leg structures. Exactly. This can be important for boards as well. An easy way I remember this in my mind is that the tibial division may be the more medial fibers, whereas the fibular division may be the more lateral nerve fibers. This helps me remember that the tibial part of the sciatic nerve innervates the semitendinosus, semimembranosus, and long head of the biceps femoris. The fibular division then of the sciatic nerve innervates the short head of the biceps femoris prior to reaching the fibular head. Okay, Parth, now on our nerve roadmap, we're at the level of the popliteal fossa. We'll focus on the tibial nerve now and discuss the common fibular nerve in our second case. The tibial nerve continues down to innervate the popliteus, the gastrocnemius, the soleus, and potentially the plantaris, if it is present. It then continues as the posterior tibial nerve to innervate the tibialis posterior, flexor digitorum longus, and flexor hallucis longus. Distally, as we move towards the ankle, it will eventually become the medial plantar nerve, the lateral plantar nerve, and the calcaneal nerve. We will briefly mention the tarsal tunnel here, which is another site of pathology for the tibial nerve. More on this later. Great job so far. It looks like we've followed the sciatic nerve and tibial nerve pretty far distally. We've talked about important muscles, but what about sensory innervation to the posterior leg? Proximally, the superior and middle cluneal nerves help supply sensation over the glutes. In the posterior thigh, some important sensory branches include the posterior femoral nerve, which supplies the posterior thigh. The sural nerve is an important sensory branch of the tibial nerve further down. It gives sensation to the lateral lower leg and the fifth toe. The calcaneal branch is another important sensory branch that gives sensation to our heel, along with the medial and lateral plantar nerves that innervate the sides and the bottom of our feet. Thanks, Monty. That's an excellent overview of the anatomy. Let's apply everything we learned to this case. If we think he has a proximal sciatic nerve injury from his posterior hip dislocation, it makes sense that he is complaining of knee flexion weakness and plantar flexion weakness. His sensory complaints would also make sense, given his paresthesias down the posterior leg. If his knee extension is intact, which involves the femoral nerve and quadriceps muscles, that also fits the picture. We briefly mentioned radiculopathies and plexopathies. Why do we think those aren't as high on our differential? First, in lumbar radiculopathies, we might hear a clinical history that includes low back pain with radiation of pain into the glutes, the posterior leg, or the distal leg. This may be secondary to pathologies of the spine, including herniated discs, spinal stenosis, or spondylosis in general. On exam, there could be motor, sensory, and reflex abnormalities in the given nerve root distribution. 
Physical exam may also be positive for dural tension signs, like the straight leg raise or seated slump test. In a lumbar plexopathy, the etiology of injury may be secondary to trauma, like a pelvic fracture or retroperitoneal bleeding after an injury. It can also be due to uncontrolled diabetes, radiation, cancer, or neuralgic amyotrophy. Clinical presentation can be variable depending on which parts of the plexus are affected. In this case, and other cases of sciatic nerve injury, we think of things like hip trauma, hip replacements done using a posterior approach, hip dislocations, pelvic fractures, or hematomas. It can also be due to infarctions, injections around the gluteal muscles, or acute compression, such as prolonged sitting or comas. Patients may present with weakness in all or some of the muscles innervated by the sciatic nerve, including weakness with knee flexion and plantar flexion. Sensation may be abnormal in the previously discussed nerves with patients complaining of posterior thigh pain, lateral leg, or foot numbness. You should, however, have sparing of the medial leg in the saphenous nerve distribution. Radicular pain is another common complaint. We might see an abnormal medial hamstrings or Achilles reflex in these patients. Finally, it's important to note that in sciatic neuropathies, the fibular, also known as the perineal division, is more frequently affected as the fibular division has less fascicles than the tibial division. It has fewer supporting structures than around it, and it is more taut in its course between the hip and the fibular head, making it more susceptible to injury. As a bonus part, let's talk about tibial neuropathies. In tibial mononeuropathies, distal to the popliteal fossa, we might expect sparing of those proximal hamstring muscles, but abnormalities of plantar flexion strength or intrinsic foot strength. The tarsal tunnel is one commonly tested location of tibial nerve entrapment. In those cases, we may have foot muscle weakness with sparing of the more proximal plantar flexors. Examination may be positive for Tunnell's sign at the medial ankle, and symptoms may be worsened with ankle inversion. Thanks, Monty. That's a ton of information. I think we're almost done with this case, but let's talk about EMG-specific topics first. How could we use EMG and our nerve conduction studies to help us confirm the diagnosis? Parth, going back to your question earlier, our EMG and nerve conduction studies could help us rule out a lumbar radiculopathy and rule in a sciatic neuropathy. In a lumbar radiculopathy, we should have normal snaps. EMG of the paraspinal muscles will be abnormal. This wouldn't be the case in a sciatic nerve injury. If there is an S1 radiculopathy, we could potentially see an abnormal H reflex. In a sciatic neuropathy, particularly a more proximal one, we would expect involvement of both the tibial and fibular portions of the sciatic nerve. In our initial nerve conduction studies, we may see abnormal superficial fibular snaps and abnormal sural snaps. Remember, the sural nerve is a branch of the tibial nerve, so abnormalities in both these nerves indicates that it can't be an isolated fibular or tibial issue. CMAPs may be abnormal at the extensor digitorum brevis, or EDB, as well as the abductor halluses. For our EMG study, we would expect abnormalities in all sciatic innervated muscles. One helpful way to evaluate this is to test the biceps femoris muscles. Both the long and the short head will demonstrate abnormal activity in a proximal sciatic neuropathy. In contrast, if this were an isolated tibial nerve injury, we would not expect to see pathology in the short head of the biceps femoris muscle, as this would be innervated by the fibular division of the sciatic nerve. While we're talking about the tibial nerve, 
What might we see in a tibial nerve injury? We might expect abnormal plantar nerve snaps, abnormal medial and lateral plantar nerve CMAPs, and abnormal activity in the tibial innervated muscles. This also depends on whether the injury is more proximal to the tarsal tunnel or if it's at the level of the tarsal tunnel. If it's at the level of the tarsal tunnel, we would have a normal medial calcaneal nerve snap, since this tends to branch off prior to the tunnel itself. Our EMG may illustrate abnormalities in the abductor hallucis, lumbrical muscles, or abductor digiti quinti pedis. Great summary, Mani. What would be the best way to treat and manage this patient's injury? Treatments can unfortunately be variable, depending on the type of nerve injury, location of injury, and the severity of injury. Usually, our treatments will involve some type of rehabilitation and therapy. If we think there is a nerve injury secondary to entrapment, refractory cases may also benefit from surgical decompression. However, as a less invasive alternative, physiatrists can now also consider performing ultrasound-guided nerve hydrodissections to achieve a similar goal. Awesome job, Monty. That wraps up our first case. Next up will be our lightning round, followed by case number two. Next up, the lightning round. Our focus during this lightning round will be on the anterior leg. Parth, are you ready? Let's do it. Let's start off with an easy one. What nerve roots form the femoral nerve? Oh, that's simple. That would be L2, L3, and L4. It's formed from the posterior divisions of the ventral rami of these nerve roots. Exactly right, Parth. After the femoral nerve is formed, it runs through the psoas muscle and under the inguinal ligament. Remember the acronym NAVEL. This describes the structures that run from lateral to medial, or outside to inside. The N in NAVEL stands for nerve, and the A stands for artery. Thus, we know that the femoral nerve runs lateral to the femoral artery. Parth, do you know what muscles the femoral nerve innervates? I think I do. The iliacus, half of the pectineus, the sartorius, and the quadricep muscles. This includes the rectus femoris, the vastus lateralis, the vastus intermedius, and the vastus medialis. Correct again. And what is the name of the major sensory nerve that branches from the femoral nerve? That would be the saphenous nerve. It travels through the adductor canal and provides innervation to the anterior and medial thigh, calf, and foot. What about the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve? Is this a branch of the femoral nerve? Actually, the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve is a sensory nerve from L2 and L3 that is responsible for sensation to the lateral thigh. Exactly right. I tried to trick you with that one, Parth, but I think you were a little too smart to be fooled. One important thing to remember about this nerve is that lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy, also referred to as neuralgia paresthetica, can result in lateral paresthesias or pain. It may be due to trauma, diabetes, tumors, infection, or rapid weight change. Electrodiagnostic studies may illustrate an abnormal lateral femoral cutaneous nerve snap, normal CMAPs, and otherwise unremarkable EMG studies. While we're talking about EMG, another question for you, Parth. What might we see in a femoral neuropathy? Femoral neuropathies are interesting. They may be due to trauma and compression by a hematoma, tumor, or even the inguinal ligament. Stretch injuries during dancing, yoga, or leg hyperextension can be implicated as well. 
Another high-yield common cause is pelvic surgeries. Finally, it may also be caused by diabetic amyotrophy, which is definitely board-relevant. Patients may present with weakness of knee extension and decreased thigh sensation or medial leg sensation. They may complain of leg buckling or falls. Physical exam may illustrate knee extension weakness with abnormal patellar reflex. Adduction, however, may be normal. In severe cases, hip flexion may be slightly weaker than the contralateral side. On electrodiagnostic studies, we would expect an abnormal saphenous nerve snap, abnormal rectus femoris C-maps, and abnormal EMG of the quadriceps muscles. Okay, I think the questions I've been asking you have been too easy so far, so I've got one last harder one. How might I differentiate between an L3 or L4 radiculopathy versus a femoral neuropathy? The answer is obviously the obturator nerve. This nerve is formed by the L2, L3, and L4 nerve roots and innervate our adductor muscles. Remember how the femoral nerve was formed from the posterior divisions of the same roots? Well, the obturator nerve is formed from the anterior divisions of these nerve roots. Thus, injury to the obturator nerve would result in weakness with leg adduction. If we had an L3 or L4 radiculopathy, we would expect both the femoral and obturator nerves to be involved. If it was a pure femoral neuropathy, the obturator nerve would not be affected. I can't stump you, Parth. Right again. Going off of that, in obturator nerve injuries, along with weakness of adduction, we might have weakness of internal rotation. We might also have medial thigh and inguinal region numbness or paresthesias. Parth, that wraps up our lightning round. Are you ready for case number two? Let's do it. Okay, Parth, let's start our next case. A 33-year-old female software engineer without any prior medical history comes to your office with right foot weakness. She reports sensation changes and paresthesias of the right lower leg as well, including the dorsum of her foot. She denies back pain or any radicular type symptoms. She spends a lot of time on virtual meetings and can't get comfortable in her chair unless she is crossing her leg. On physical exam, you notice weakness with ankle dorsiflexion and eversion, with normal strength otherwise. On gait evaluation, you notice that she ambulates with a steppage-type gait pattern. Reflexes are normal, and the exam is negative for any clonus. Examination of the left lower extremity is unremarkable. Okay, Parth, based on the information we have so far, what's on your differential? I think you left me some good breadcrumbs with this case, but I'll start off broadly for my differential diagnosis. Clinically, this sounds like some sort of foot drop. My suspicion for a central neurologic issue, like stroke, is much lower given her overall presentation, particularly as she has negative upper motor neuron testing on exam. Next, working my way down, I might start to think of a lumbar radiculopathy. When I think about weakness of ankle dorsiflexion, I think about an L4 or L5 radiculopathy. However, her history does not sound too suspicious for this type of injury. Along with her history and examination, our electrodiagnostic studies will help us tease out if there is any concern for a radiculopathy. As we move more peripherally, I might start to think about the nerves and muscles involved with ankle dorsiflexion. One of the major nerves involved here is a deep fibular nerve, which will innervate the tibialis anterior, accessor hallucis longus, extensor digitorum longus, and fibularis tertius, which is also known as perineus tertius. An injury of the common fibular nerve or the deep fibular nerve could result in this type of foot drop, 
esquamoral proximal lesion at the level of the sciatic nerve. Eversion weakness can also help me locate the injury. Our muscles of ankle eversion are generally innervated by either the deep fibular nerve or the superficial fibular nerve. Thus, we would not expect eversion weakness in a tibial nerve injury, but may see eversion weakness with an injury to the common fibular nerve, deep fibular nerve, or superficial fibular nerve. Based on our clinical history and physical exam, I would suspect that she suffered a common fibular nerve injury. This is because of her combination of paresthesias and weakness seem to be a combination of the superficial fibular and deep fibular nerves. Nicely done, Parth. I would agree with you. Some hints from her history include the frequent leg crossing in an otherwise healthy young woman. The steppage gait is another sign of the dorsiflexion weakness. Common fibular neuropathies at the fibular head are among the most common neuropathies and should be a consideration when evaluating foot drop. What we should do now is discuss the anatomy of the common fibular nerve and its branches. Agreed. The common fibular nerve, also known as the common perineal nerve, is one of the major branches of the sciatic nerve, which we discussed earlier. Proximal to the popliteal fossa, fibular nerve fibers innervate the short head of the biceps femoris. This is the only fibular innervated muscle before the fibular neck. The common fibular nerve will then branch off, travel in the fibular tunnel between the fibularis longus muscle and the fibula before splitting into the superficial and deep fibular nerves. What are the different sensory and motor components of these two branches? The superficial fibular nerve innervates our fibularis longus and, and brevis muscles of the lateral lower leg. These muscles are important for plantar flexion and eversion. It also supplies sensation to the lateral and anterior lower leg, except for the first web space of the foot. The deep fibular nerve innervates the tibialis anterior, extensor halus longus, extensor digitorum longus, extensor digitorum brevis, and the fibularis tertius. It also innervates the first web space of the foot, which can be a useful hint for differentiating between these two nerves. Parth, I've also heard of something called the accessory deep fibular nerve, or the accessory deep perineal nerve. This is also known as the ADPN. What exactly is this nerve? Good question. The ADPN is a common nerve anomaly, present in about 25-33% to of the population, that may branch off the superficial fibular nerve to innervate part or all of the extensor digitorum brevis. Normally, the EDB is innervated by the deep fibular nerve. Thus, in certain electrodiagnostic studies, if you suspect that there is an injury to the deep fibular nerve, but EDB findings appear normal, it may be because the EDB is getting some innervation from the superficial fibular nerve. To check, we can stimulate behind the lateral malleolus and see if we elicit a CMAP at the EDB. If there is no ADPN, there should be no CMAP when stimulating the lateral malleolus. You mentioned a good electrodiagnostic pearl just now. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what we might expect to see on electrodiagnostic studies for other fibular neuropathies? In a common fibular neuropathy, we would expect an abnormal superficial fibular snap as well as abnormalities in the CMAP as elicited at the tibialis anterior or EDB. If the pathology is at the level of the fibular head, we wouldn't expect these abnormalities to be present and more proximal to this location. Our EMG studies would be abnormal in both superficial and deep fibular nerve innervated muscles. Again, if pathology is at the fibular head, then EMG of the short head of the biceps femoris would be normal. In an isolated deep fibular neuropathy, we would expect there to be an abnormal deep fibular snap at the first web space and abnormal CMAP at the extensor digitorum brevis. 
EMG would illustrate abnormalities in deep fibular nerve innervated muscles, such as the tibialis anterior. Nicely done, Parth. Okay, that brings us to the end of case number two. We're almost done. Next up is a quick pop quiz, followed by our key takeaways. Time for a quick pop quiz. Parth, what muscles are innervated by the superior gluteal nerve? That would be the gluteus medius, gluteus minimus, and tensor fasciolata. Correct. What about the inferior gluteal nerve? That would be the gluteus maximus. Exactly right. Okay, Parth, my last question is a little bit harder. Can you name all the contents of the tarsal tunnel? I always think of a popular mnemonic for the contents. Tom, Dick, and Very Nervous Harry. Tom is tibialis posterior, Dick is flexor digitorum longus, and is a posterior tibial artery, Barry is a posterior tibial vein, Nervous is a tibial nerve, finally Harry is flexor halsus longus. Right again, Parth. Okay, that concludes our pop quiz. Let's wrap up this podcast with some key takeaways. Okay, Parth, that was a ton of high-yield information. Are you ready for some key takeaways? Let's get into them. Here they are. Number one, myalgia parasitica, or lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy, may result in lateral thigh paresthesias or pain. Number two, the femoral nerve, which is formed from L2, L3, and L4 nerve roots, is an important nerve that innervates the quadricep muscles, the iliacus, sartorius, and one half of the pectineus muscle. It gives rise to a major sensory branch, the saphenous nerve, that provides sensation to the anteromedial thigh, calf, and foot. One commonly tested cause of neuropathy here is diabetic amyotrophy. Number three, the sciatic nerve, formed from L4, L5, S1, S2, and S3 nerve roots, is the largest nerve in the body and innervates our posterior thigh muscles, including our semitendinosus, semimembranosus, biceps femoris, and adductor magnus muscles. It is composed of a fibular and tibial portion. The short head of the biceps femoris is the only muscle proximal to the popliteal fossa that is innervated by the fibular portion. Number four. The tibial nerve is one of the major branches of the sciatic nerve and is responsible for innervating the muscles of our deep posterior and superficial posterior compartments of the lower leg, including some of our important plantar flexors. Number five. The common fibular nerve is the other major branch of the sciatic nerve that innervates the anterior and lateral compartments of the lower leg. It gives rise to the deep fibular nerve, which innervates the anterior compartment, and the superficial fibular nerve, which innervates our lateral compartment. Number six, the contents of the tarsal tunnel include the tibialis posterior, the flexor digitorum longus, the posterior tibial artery, vein, and nerve, and the flexor halsus longus. Number seven. The superior gluteal nerve innervates the gluteus minimus and medius, whereas the inferior gluteal nerve innervates the gluteus maximus. Great summary, Parth. Thanks, Moni, and thanks to all of you who joined us today for this installment in the AAP Board Review podcast series. Thank you all for joining us on the AAP Board Review Series. 
We would like to give a special shout out to Dr. Charlie Scott and Dr. Akin Beckley at New York Presbyterian for reviewing this podcast and helping us put it together. 